This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back, gentle listeners. I'm Marco Palmieri. And I'm Devin Shepard. Last week, we shared part one of an unsettling horror story about a toxic relationship and the dark things it awakens in a remote cabin in the woods. So without further ado, we return you to The Night Sun, written by Zin E. Rocklin and voiced by Robin Eller. I am here again. My arm outstretched, my fingertip pressing gently against the tiniest sliver, the smallest of the teeth, the one most stained and fuck it's sharp. I bring the stain to my face, smear it under my nose, suck it from the prick. It is blood. In the very center of the spiral at the bottom of the staircase, at the back of the basement, at the end of the gravel, Pavement, loose dirt, grass. It is blood, and it is fresh. It took longer than expected. I'd grown tired of sitting with my back straight, so I leaned into the couch cushions. By the time the door opened, I was feeding into another nap. What took you so long? My voice was stronger. Remarkably so, considering the wrecked state it had been in last time I used it. The carved ivory felt lighter in my hand, the grooves becoming familiar with the whorls of my palm and fingerprints. What did he say to you? Jonas asked, instead of answering me. He stomped around the cabin, no intention other than to make the space thick with his anger. I slowly released a breath, not convinced. Nothing that concerns you, I said, testing my eyelids. The swelling had gone down. The pain was subsiding. I peeled them back with the tips of my fingers and immediately hissed at the brightness. Take all the fucking lights. A moment. A tick, really, but solid enough to poke at the base of my belly, followed by the instinct to press my thighs together. The fuck did you say? And then it was over. My whole body drooped, my breathing slowing, my hands at my sides, one open, the other closed in a fist around the curve of ivory. I closed my eyes again. Electric whispers ghosting over my skin. The hairs standing on end. He took a step. I took a breath. What did you just say to me, Avery? All bluster, no might, I chuckled. Like a wound-up clown, Jonas stomped over to the couch, then swung around, 
body swollen with ego, he leaned forward, grabbing my wrists and squeezing. What did you say? The pressure increased with each word. The ivory deeply embedded within the fat of my palm, still warming, 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 until it became unbearable. I hissed, and I saw him clear as day. I saw his smile, and I twisted my left wrist, flesh burning, as it rubbed away within his grip, my fingers clawing for perches, beginning to squeeze back as one digit, two, three, dug deep and hard into the tender thin through of his own left wrist, nails piercing, growing, as I pulled down with all my might. Jonas screamed, yanking his left hand away, strips of flesh dangling in its wake. The move was so fast, he barely had time to bleed before I struck his nose with my forehead. He mewled and stumbled back, the hands cradling the center of his face, barely hiding the shock of the hit. I smiled and stood, my eyes still closed. I could feel him in front of me, smell the reek of something frail, something grown by fear, fostered by anger, delivered by a need for shallow control deep within him. I wanted to taste it. I wanted to rip it from his chest and show him in his last moments just how small he'd become to me. The man who'd been my world for 14 years. The man who'd taken my 14 years. But he swung on me, connected a wild throw of a side fist with my temple, dazing me. And I swung back. And shit, I didn't mean to. I promise. I'm just... I'm just a righty, and the ivory, the ivory was still in the palm of my hand. And I'd completely forgotten until that thick whiplash of plasma wet slashes my... I opened my eyes to the taste of blood. I lick my lips of the spray and the heel. My mouth no longer dry. My eyelids no longer swollen. I don't look at him. I can't. So I turn away and head toward the door, leaving it open as I step out into the freezing night. The headlights have been illuminating my path for the last six miles, pinpricks highlighting the road ahead of me, really. But everything is so fucking sensitive. It almost hurts. It does hurt, like new skin to a freezing wind. As if I'd skinned myself alive, and left the shell of me lying on the floor of my grandfather's cabin, whichever grandfather he may have been. Ahead of me, I hear the relaxed clomp of a deer stepping onto the asphalt, just as the headlights dip below a man-made hill. I hear several more, and when the headlights finally return, I stop in my tracks. Five deer, their necks stripped of fur and skin and fat and flesh, leaving tendons and palpitating stratum. The thumping, 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 in time with the heaviness in my heart. They stand watching me, just as I watch them. One snorts, shaking the horror that is its head. It is then that I notice the membrane swinging loose from the tip of an antler. A new point, 
bringing it to 20. All of them are in the stage, all with 20 points, all still miraculously breathing. A truck slows, its brakes squealing in protest. A door opens and work boots stomp the pavement. But I don't panic. There are more of them, but the antler points are for each of us. I feel the itch of wool before the warmth of his arm around my shoulders. And I realize I'm naked. There's something we have to show you. I tear my gaze away from the deer and eye Casimiro carefully. I nod. Okay. He doesn't speak. And I'm too bewildered, too tired to ask questions. We double back to the cabin. Pass it then pull into a short paved driveway some ten miles out. Come on, he says, then unfolds himself from off of the truck. I don't move until he opens the door for me. I slide out and shiver, and Casimir slips a thick arm around my shoulders. I didn't notice how tall he is until now, a full head taller than I am. Thick black hair pulled into a loose ponytail at the base of his stocky neck. Long hair must be the trend around here. I do not fit in. I'm studying the curve of his lips as he walks me up the trampled path leading to another log cabin. Yours? I say, still staring. He nods. We all have one. We. I don't question. Yeah. Just a warning. My dad is here, and he's a bit of a pendejo, so I chuckle. As long as he doesn't try to whoop my ass, I think I can handle him. Casimiro smirks, and I suddenly long to see his full smile. I want to see his tiny eyes squint further. I want to hear his laugh from that barrel chest, or from the solid belly below. But instead, he unlocks the door and gently tugs me inside. His cabin is the same as the one my sister supposedly rented. Except there's more furniture and all of it's well-worn. The first thing I notice with sharp interest is on the far wall, a spiral of teeth. This one is much smaller than the one I dreamt of, but the same principle applies. Smallest to largest from the base on, the same varying colors of ivory, the same stain on the very tiniest one at the center. I've taken all of three steps into the identical cabin before I stop, completely mesmerized. We all have them, Casimiro says to my left. He's quiet for such a big dude. Each generation fills in what we lost, what has been taken from us. He looks at me, at the side of my face, because I'm still staring at the spiral, transfixed, not by hypnotism, but by something else. Something deep in the base of my belly. Some of us have lost more than others, but we stick together no matter what. One loss for me is a loss to us all. Mijo, ¿qué hace una negra en nuestra casa? We both turn to the loft stairs where the voice is coming from, and making feeble progress down the ladder is a man who is aged in body much more than mind. Something ugly is eating at him, gnawing into his bones and festering his lungs. My nose wrinkles. Casimiro must have noticed because he says way too close to the shell of my ear. Told you he's an ass. Not the worst, trust me, I mutter back. Casimiro moves around me, 
and I breathe deep. Move a la kama, papa. Esto no es tu asunto. I watch Casimir's shoulders flex as he takes hold of his father's withered shoulders. Elia está en mi casa. Es mi asunto. His father shouts back. I watch as Casimiro leans toward his father. I find myself straining to hear as Casimiro whispers to the old man, and with a pop of a balloon, my ears prick at the words, De alla in paz. His father sags, then lets himself be guided back up the stairs. Casimiro returns a moment later and says, I heard you like tea. I'm on my second cup of Earl Grey when I ask, what in the entire fuck is actually going on? Casimiro stops mid-sip of his coffee and stares at me, eyes wider than I thought possible with those heavy lids, his lips curling up around the lip of the mug. I'm surprised it took you this long. I roll my eyes and study the milky tea. Yeah, well, it's been a wild-ass weekend and it's hardly over. I'm pretty sure my husband punched me hard enough for a goddamn embolism. I just saw a bunch of deer with no fucking necks. And I'm naked, yet I'm bothered in front of a very attractive stranger. He clears his throat and I look up in time to see Casimir's cheeks redden. It was like he hadn't noticed my nakedness. Until I mention it in terms outside of rescue. In terms of our body's proximity and the fact that I find him attractive. The apples of his cheeks threaten to burst, so I look away. Yet I don't feel shame. I clutch the blanket tighter, but only out of habitual propriety. Part of me feels stifled within the wool, but I'm still a married woman. At least I think so. It's taking a lot for me not to start snot bubble crying in front of you. And this is the first time I feel like I can breathe in. I smirk, look up from my mug and lift one shoulder. Fourteen years, I snort. Fourteen fucking years. Casimiro shifts, the wooden chair groaning, and there's something like sympathy on his face. Honestly, there's only so much I can tell you. We have to show you. There's that we again. Casimiro doesn't react, doesn't appear to even try to respond. Is this what you're meant to show me? I say, gesturing to the cabin, then the spiral of teeth. No, he clears his throat, but says nothing more. Okay, let's start with this. Who is Bruce Hayward? At this, Casimiro livens up, his back straightening, his black eyes sparking. To put it plainly, he's a white face who lets us leave. I lift an eyebrow intrigued and sit forward, my chin in the palm of my hand. Casimiro points at my mug. More tea? You're shaking. I hesitate, thinking he's buying time, but I sense no. I smell something warmer to the question. Sure, I say, sliding the chipped white mug back to him. He grabs it and stands, heading toward the two-burner stove. I watch the twin globes of his impressive ass as they take on the solid weight of him. Those jeans were made for him.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Story is his family settled here, back in the late 1800s, claiming to be native. Five-dollar Indian? Exactly. To add insult to injury, the Haywards were pretending to be abolitionists and kidnapping slaves who were making their way to Canada. They kept some for their own property, raped others, killed a few, and sent plenty back for the monetary reward. They grew pretty rich off it, until they took the wrong family of slaves. He stops fiddling with the kettle and turns to me. Your family. I swallow. This is the most I've ever heard about any of our family. Mom and Dad always shrugged our questions off, saying we'd find out in due time. I briefly wonder if Kaya's time has come already. Good old Kaya, always ahead of the game. Or at least ahead of me. I nod to Casimiro, and he turns back to spooning the loose tea into a silken pouch. I smile bashfully at the care he's showing for the third time in a row. Nothing rushed, all delicate. It happened when Bruce turned 20 and was, by all rights, considered a property-owning man. He was getting ready to marry when he thought to prove himself to his father by managing a group of slaves on his own, your grandfather among them. Wait, when exactly are we talking about? Casimiro lifts a shoulder as he seals the tea container. Early 1900s? I roll my eyes. So illegal. Disappointing, yet not surprising. And Bruce was 20? Yep. He's a whole ass 113 years old. It happens before I can help it. I pop a laugh so loud, Casimir's father snores himself awake for a moment. We both freeze until the muttering stops and a soft breathing is recognized as slumber. Casimiro grins, and I feel a tingle trapes across my chest. His smile is radiant. Small teeth tobacco stained and adorably uneven the crinkle of crow's feet leading to nearly swallowed eyes. I want to kiss him. I clear my throat nervously and ask, how is he convinced to cover for y'all? The question doesn't taste right. I try again. For us, how did my grandfather convince him? Casimir's grin had fallen, but now the corner of his mouth ticks back up. He beat the living shit out of Bruce's hip after killing the whole rest of his family. Oh, damn. Yeah, told him his white god doesn't live here, and neither will he should he not take this offer. How come he didn't opt for death? Oh, he tried, but the bite brought him back every time. 
aging him just enough to feel a little worse, you know. You should have heard the wailing. The last time, your grandfather told him the truth. There ain't shit waiting for him and his people in the afterlife. Plus, your grandfather promised protection from the other things going bump in the night around here. So there has always been weird shit around here, huh? Casimiro nods as he grabs the kettle before it can scream. Yeah, the Haywards weren't exactly immune to the threats either. A couple of Bruce's older and younger siblings, cousins, those who dared to walk at night, have been snatched and never seen again. The Haywards had the lamb blessed by their white god, but the forest laughed at them. I think that may have informed Bruce's choice as well. I snort. I'd imagine. Casimiro returns to the table with my tea, perfectly milky and sweet, and I hide my content smile with a face full of mug. When I finish, he covers my fisted hand with his, and I melt under the calluses, not daring a look at just how large his mitts are, how the veins bulge from strength, how teeth trimmed and small his nail beds are. I notice nothing but the growing heaviness between my legs. But I realize he's waiting for eye contact, waiting for me to be truly ready for whatever lies ahead. So as he runs his thumb over my skin, I look up at him. He is beautiful. It's time, he says. I nod, and we stand. The ride is quiet, and like a child, I want to cry. But Casimiro has my other hand in his, and I try to revel in that fact alone. It works until he stops at the top of a wooded ridge where Sheriff Bruce Hayward is standing, ramrod straight, with his hands deep in his jacket pockets. Casimiro gently lays my hand in my lap and exits the truck. I'm still staring at the sheriff, and Casimiro comes back into view, making a grand gesture of opening the door and guiding me out. After he sets me in front of the sheriff, they nod to one another. I turn to Casimiro. He lends me a sweet smile. I'll see you soon. Promise. He rubs my shoulder, then gets back into the truck and takes off before either one of us speaks. Here comes the rough part, Bruce says, then winks at me. He's already walking toward the trees before I can gather my thoughts. My belly growls as I hurry to follow his lead. We've been taking the ridge one zigzag after another. My feet are getting used to the grit of the disused road, blood trailing behind me until it stops, until the dirt clogs my wounds or my soul's callus at a miraculous rate. I don't know. I just keep walking, and thinking of Casimiro's hand in mine as he delivered me to the sheriff. Awful quiet back there, Bruce says, and I flinch, surprising myself. I don't know why it seems so wrong to speak with such beautiful moonlight casting everything in a mercurial glow, but it feels like a violation. Night sun. I shudder at the sound of my mother's voice at the shell of my right ear. I can hear her smile, feel her arms wrapped around me from behind as she rocked me towards something like sleep. I was always stubborn or nosy if you were to believe my mom. Sleep is a luxury I could never afford, no matter how rich with time I am. Five dollar Indian. Bruce's voice snatches my attention. I'm sorry, I say. He chuckles. I'm sure Casimiro told you. I clear my throat. Oh, right, yeah, 
He did. Hmm, good. Shit is embarrassing enough. It's then that I noticed the hitch in his left leg has worsened. He's limping at this point, and I can smell the grimace on his face. I smirk. Good. I shrug. Gotta say, you're certainly aging better than most of your brethren. Ha! Kaya did tell me you're a smartass. Before I can ask, he winks at me, then turns toward an even steeper pathway. Come on, not that much farther to go. The lake is smaller than I thought it would be. The water, still, deep, clear. The moonlight shines right to the bottom. The rocks littered on shore, matching those of the lake's belly. It smells crisp, nearly seductive in its soft scent after the stab of cold. The larger rocks dig into my feet, but I'm no longer being cut, and I don't feel as cold. Though I dropped the blanket some hundred feet back, so the sheriff's got my attention for now. But not for long. I smell something familiar in the distance. A stench, strong and distasteful. It was the rot back in the cabin, the licorice linger of pride at the back of my tongue. I hear the tickle of footsteps over the dirt, then over pebbles. But there is also dragging, heavy and ungainly, the sting of copper accenting the air every few steps or so. I sniff deeply at those spikes of flavor, find more than a few notes disgusting, and snort them out. Threads of mucus slapping my lips and chin. I wipe at my mouth with the back of my hand, then lick it. It's automatic, and I think nothing of it, until I feel the string of a hair in my teeth. I look down to see the same silvery glow of the moon is irradiating my skin. But not my flesh, exactly. My hair. It's not immediately visible. It's almost like cilia. Floating, swaying in the light breeze, pulsing with the moon's heat, beating with my own veins with the thrum of the forest beyond. I look up. The deer. More of them, surrounding the lake. With people on their backs, one after another they slide from the smooth hides of their deer and step forward into the night sun's face, naked as I am. I recognize Casimiro, the same odd glow breathing from his skin. My eyes skip around, but I don't recognize most of the people here, except my sister. Kaya? I holler. She smiles back, her smile benevolent, patient, yet tinged with regret. I'm sorry, she whispers to me. I want to go to her, but I can't. I'm rooted to the spot my belly growling ferociously, and there's this pain in my side. The copper smell gets stronger, and I look up, distracted from the growing discomfort in my bones, to see a man, a white man, being dragged by his hair by a black woman, so beautiful, I nearly weep at the sight of her. It is not because she is attractive. In fact, most would say she was a hard woman, aggressive in the angles of her face, the pucker of big lips, the ebony of her skin. Most would say I look just like her. I've inherited her hips, her protruding belly, 
her southward quarter-size areolas, and jelly bean nipples. She is glowing, and she is smiling directly at me as if she missed me, as if she loves me, as if she's forgiven me. The man in her grasp finds his fight and starts kicking fruitlessly at the gravel. No, get off of me, you crazy bitch. I gasp at the sound of his voice, though I should have known him by smell alone. Let me go. People know I'm out here. They'll look for me. You won't get away with this. Still, Mom keeps walking forward, his head in her palm like a ripe grapefruit, his legs losing strength. And my gaze is stuck with her. I don't care that my husband is in her grasp. I don't care that he's scared for his life. I don't care that he's pissed himself until his bladder's wrung dry. I don't care about anything but my mother. She stops in front of me, and it is like looking into a mirror. Kaya was the softer of the two of us, taking on Daddy's slight frame, high butt and perfect sun-toasted skin, while Mom and I charmed folks with our wit, with an attraction they couldn't quite explain. I'm, I rush, but her long fingers pressing against my mouth hush me, stopping the tears building in the back of my throat. You didn't kill me. Her voice is exactly the same as I choose to remember it, light and airy and patient. I'm here in front of you. I've always been in front of you. You just needed to find me. She cups my cheek, and I nestle deep within the warmth of her hand. Again, I want to cry. But something stops me. Something much more important at hand. I know you're hungry, she whispers, stroking my other cheek. I nod against her, and my back breaks in half. I fall hard to my knees, but before I can cry out, my pelvis shifts, and my clavicle separates. Agony wheezes past the O of my mouth, and I feel every single one of my fingers and toes fracture, then snap, then dig. My back dips at my cervix, my shoulders curving. I yowl in pain, the sound raspy, deep, nearly pathetic. Mom stoops down to me after dropping my husband and pulls me up by my armpits. Hand me the ivory, Avery, and stand. I taught you how to stand. Now stand. Pain flees as anger engulfs me. You left me to fall. And it was your job to find a way. But you settled instead. And maybe, she stresses, seeing me ready to pounce. Maybe I was wrong for that. Maybe I didn't prepare you the way I should have. The way my mother should have taught me. But don't worry. You'll have your chance to teach your own. I hold my breath in an attempt to stave off the pain and hand her the intricate ivory piece. She steps back hands at her side, as Casimiro and a young woman of color, maybe native, step forward with a writhing Jonas in their grip. Casimiro tosses me a wink and the pain subsides, if only for a moment. Shit, Avery, Jonas gasps, interrupting that moment. My lip curls in disgust as the young woman pulls his head back. 
His nose is gore-streaked with black blood, his left eye swollen. A short yet deep mocking smile of gash right above his cheekbone, just missing his eye. So I didn't kill him. Avery, baby, let's get out of here, okay? Let's start over. We don't even have to go home. We can just drive. Just go wherever you want. Please, please, baby, just- My mother rends his shoulder open with the ivory, shutting him up. A pale yellow fat swells forward, puckering towards the growl of my stomach. I lick my lips as the wound weeps. Shh, I coo, pressing an elongated pointer finger against his whimpering mouth. A tip of a serrated nail kisses his eyelashes, a nail with intricate whorls decorating it. I smile, my gums aching, my jaws crowding then stretching, and something clicks, something deep within me, something that I thought had been missing since my mother died. I feel restored. I feel whole. We're right here, Avery. And this time, family ain't going anywhere. It's like a jolt to my chest. Those words, the words I've been yearning to hear for so, so long. I smile, I step forward. I am so, so hungry. And my husband sounds so, so pathetic. He can no longer form complete words, shock shutting down his system. His adrenaline long abated. I look at him good. Close. I ghost a kiss over those trembling lips. And I can deny my hunger no longer. I throw my head back, lower mandible cracking, jutting forward. Incisors slicing against their distant twins. The pain is an engulfing madness, sharp as it is wide, as it is deep, so vociferous, I scream for it. For me, for my mother, for us. It is only when I hear the chorus of the night sun surrounding me that I face my husband one more time. I take his head into my hands. Figure me now. See me now. One tear falls, and it is all the seasoning I need. It might be tempting to think of The Night Sun as a revenge story, and it is, but it's so much more than that. It's steeped in history and folklore, but it's also boiling with visceral emotions. I could feel Avery's raw intensity throughout, and that's a credit to Zin E. Rockland's writing. And that's what I loved most about this piece, and why I kept questioning if Avery was meant to be a wolf or be a deer. I think Rockland plays a lot with that. Mm -hmm. We usually look at women in abusive relationships as helpless victims. Mm. But through Avery's raw intensity, as you put it, Rockland pushes against that stereotype. Victim, yes, but helpless, no. Yeah, totally. She really did, did a great job with that. I also want to give props to Robin Eller for her powerful narration. Great, great stuff. Yeah, she really got me with some of those more gory moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have. Devin, thanks for riding into the dark woods with me. Oh, anytime. And if The Night Sun is the kind of unsettling fiction you crave, 
let us know with a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. And join us next time when we'll bring you a truly disturbing double feature. Until then, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 92, features The Night Sun, Part 2, by Zin E. Rocklin. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Angela Yee and Devin Shepard. An executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Mary Osadolahi. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Devin Shepard. Performed by Robin Eller. Audio edited by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Osadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.